I'm Damian Bulwa, Metro Editor at The Chronicle, and I'll be joined by our two state capital reporters, Alexi Kossif and Dustin Gardner. We'll talk about the fight that's on in Sacramento over hundreds of proposed bills, legislation that could affect everything from housing to the environment to the recent measles outbreak to whether bars in Oakland and San Francisco and other cities should be able to stay open until 4 a.m. All that right after this. All right, Alexi Kossif and Dustin Gardner are with me. These two are our Sacramento Bureau. Thanks for uh, joining us over the phone, guys. Happy to be here. Thank you. So you guys are on the, the program today because we're talking about the California state legislature and the big priorities for lawmakers this year, whether they're going to get some of these things done. Where are we at with lawmaking today? So we just sort of hit the midpoint of the session. And at the end of last month, there was a big deadline, a big crush of bills, hundreds and hundreds of bills had to get through one of the houses to survive. And now we kind of start the process all over again. And all of the bills for the next few months are going to be going through the other house. And they have until mid-September to make it to the governor's desk for consideration. And how many bills roughly are we talking about? I think the assembly probably passed... 600 or so and the senate you know maybe another 300 something so um if all of these were to survive more than a thousand bills could make it to the governor's desk for consideration wow let's start with uh with housing that's always a big topic people want to know the housing crisis in california that affordability crisis california is in the midst of what's been described as an affordable housing crisis california should never be a place where only the well-off can lead a good life what happened with sb50 uh the law that everyone's keeping an eye on so sb50 as you mentioned has been kind of this very provocative high profile housing bill in the legislature this year that would basically require that cities and counties allow taller, denser apartment buildings and condominiums around um, public transit and in wealthy suburbs. SB 50 is designed to help address our terrible housing crisis. And yes, it's controversial because this is a hard issue uh, and we have hard work to do. Um, we have a 3.5 million home shortage of housing in uh, California, three and a half million homes short, uh, which to put it in context is equal to the housing shortage in the other 49 states combined. And it was looking like it was cruising along for a while there. And then the opposition really just reached a fever pitch and it was shelved in this committee uh, called the Appropriations Committee, where there's a secret vote that happens and sort of all of these machinations happen away from the public. So when that was announced, there was a lot of anger and pushback from housing advocates, and they're trying to figure out a way to revive that bill, though it's quite unlikely that will happen. So is that one dead for the year? If more or less, yes, unless they can figure out some miracle, that one is is pretty much not coming back till 2020. Okay, but obviously that's been a sort of a fundamental debate in housing in California, whether some of these communities would lose some local control, right, in favor of maybe building denser housing uh, to sort of help the regional crisis? Everybody more or less recognizes that there needs to be more housing, that California has a problem. There's just immense disagreement about how to do it. 
And while unions and the business community and developers and all of these powerful interests in Sacramento really, really want to make it easier to build, local governments are just saying, no, we are not willing to lose that control over how our communities develop and what the character of our cities are like. Okay, before we get off housing, I also want to ask you about rent control. Um, For people that uh, don't follow this issue closely, obviously rent control is allowed for older buildings, um, certain types of, of properties, uh, where you can put a cap on the uh, the rent increases. What has the legislature been doing on rent control? So Gavin Newsom earlier this year expressed his willingness to sign some kind of legislation that would benefit renters, but he hasn't said what exactly he wants. And so he's kind of leaving it, that fight to just play out and it's very, very hard to get any kind of renter protections through the legislature where landlords are a very powerful interest. So all that's kind of left moving right now as uh, an option is a uh, price gouging bill that would essentially cap um, annual rent increases at about 10% a year, basically saying Anything more than that is excessive and um, and anything up to that, you know, landlords could continue to to increase the rent. And even that is having a really tough time. So we'll see whether anything gets through by the end of the year. Okay, but it doesn't look like we'll have fundamental changes to rent control, like newer buildings uh, being able to impose caps on rent increases. Well, that that died very quickly. Uh voters voted down some of those kinds of changes in the November election and lawmakers saw that and were basically like, we're not going to touch that issue. So this price gouging approach where it would cap rent, uh, but at a much higher level than what you typically see with rent control is, is maybe a compromise approach. Oregon just did something like that. Um, But the landlords say even that is unacceptable to them. That is essentially rent control by another name. Got it. Dustin, I want to move over to you for something of of a slightly lighter note. Uh, There are people who would love to keep bars open past 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. in some cities. Where do we stand with that? Yeah, so what, one of those big proponents is State Senator Scott Weiner from San Francisco. Um, this is uh, SB 58, and basically this bill would allow some of the larger cities around the state to make their own rules to keep bars open until 4 a.m. And you know, basically Weiner is saying that this is kind of an arcane state law that makes every bar closed by 2 a.m. Um, that bill did make it through the Senate. It's over in the Assembly now. And you know, basically Weiner's argument is that this would add a lot of vibrancy and help a lot of small businesses businesses that struggle, especially in bigger cities like San Francisco. Um, But he has had quite a bit of pushback, especially from groups that are concerned about drunk driving and some of, you know, the kind of public safety, I guess, potential risks. All right. So this this bill, would it allow uh, bars around the state to go later or just in some cities? Yeah, so it only applies to would apply the way it's written now would apply to nine cities, and these are some of the bigger cities that you would typically think of when you think of kind of uh, more lively nightlife. This would include San Francisco, Oakland, um, Los Angeles, West Hollywood, Palm Springs. So it is just focused on kind of those more urban core areas at this point. 
Okay, gotcha. And then where do we stand with uh, with the fight over soda taxes and when whether cities can can impose those on people? There were roughly a half dozen bills that lawmakers put forth this year um, trying to crack down on the soda industry. People might remember there was a big fight last year over, over a ballot initiative, and ultimately the soda industry um, came out uh, on top with that one. But most of the bills this session that lawmakers brought back, uh, most of them died. The only one that is still alive at this point um, uh, would basically allow like a health warning on on sodas so, so like there could be a product warning like you see on cigarettes or alcohol war- warning people about the potential health risks of you know diabetes or other complications from drinking too many sugary beverages so just a labeling measure at this point we could see this fight return to the ballot though because they've had so much trouble in the legislature, doctors and dentists and other groups with a lot of money are willing to go to the ballot to try and pass a statewide soda tax to fund health programs. So November 2020, that could be a big fight if, if they decide to go that route. There's still quite a few bitter feelings toward the soda industry after they essentially limited the the ability of cities to pass their own soda taxes. And so I think there's a lot of that interest from the dental association, uh, doctors and others, and and some of the more progressive lawmakers who really want to do something, see something happen this year, and then maybe build the groundwork for that ballot initiative. And some studies have shown that the, the soda taxes actually reduce the consumption of soda in these cities, correct? Yeah, there was a Berkeley study that came out earlier this year looking at the effects of the soda tax there, which was the first one in the state, and it showed a significant drop in in the amount of soda consumed, and that was not that business was not moving to nearby communities. In fact, there was a small uptick in the amount of water that was purchased, um, and other other places that have tried the soda tax approach like. Mexico, for example, which had a huge problem with with health effects from soda consumption, did this a few years ago and has seen its soda um, soda purchases and all of that drop dramatically. So it's it's you know it's a real threat to the soda industry's business model, and they will fight this with everything they have. Let's switch gears again uh, to criminal justice. This uh, this New Year's Day, we had the 10th anniversary of the BART police shooting of Oscar Grant, and um, we are still fighting over uh, issues of how to uh, hold police officers accountable in the wake of, of uses of force, of shootings. Uh, what is going on with this effort um, to, to tighten those standards for police? So that looks like there's finally going to be some change this year. Uh, there's an assemblywoman from San Diego who's been pursuing this issue for a couple of years, and she was really on a different page from from law enforcement. And then the governor got involved, leadership got involved, and they basically sat them down and, and told them, you need to come up with some sort of solution. And a couple weeks ago, they introduced a compromise bill that would tighten the language for the legal standard, essentially, for when police can shoot uh, a suspect or use deadly force, but it wouldn't go as far as some of the activists uh, were originally hoping. And that bill just sailed through the assembly with nearly unanimous support. So it looks like it's cruising toward the governor's desk now. 
And the wording here can be a little bit hard for, for people to understand. We're talking about what? A reasonable use of force versus a necessary use of force? Exactly. There's a couple of Supreme Court cases that set a standard used widely across the country of what a reasonable officer would do in a particular situation. And a lot of activists say, well, that doesn't go far enough. It it basically excuses the behavior of active of, of police officers and it doesn't hold them accountable when they do something wrong. So they wanted to see a standard that would really require officers to consider alternatives, de-escalate the situation first, and then if it's a real threat, then they could use deadly force. And the version of the bill now that's moving forward tries to strike a balance between those two approaches. It doesn't require de-escalation, but it encourages it if it's possible. And it does put that necessary language into the law. Now, Dustin, you've been covering vaccinations, obviously another big issue in California. Um, We've seen a recent uh, spike in measles cases around the country. Obviously, I think a lot of people remember the the spike that happened after the Disneyland case several years ago. Um, What is going on with the effort to get more uh, children vaccinated? Yeah, there's been a huge fight over SB uh, 276. Parents call the shots! Um, basically, th- this is building on bills that lawmakers have passed in the last several years, limiting exemptions to vaccine uh, rules for kindergartners. A couple years ago, lawmakers got rid of the personal belief exemption. You know, after Disneyland and some of you know some of those outbreaks got a lot of attention. Um, now, but since that time, we've seen a spike in the number of medical exemptions, and it's a very small number of doctors that tend to be giving a lot of these medical exemptions, and that's very concerning to lawmakers. Uh, what one person who's really been kind of leading the charge on this uh, state senator Richard Pan a, a physician a pediatrician he you know basically he, he he's basically saying that a lot of these exemptions are bogus and his bill um SB 276 would essentially require the state department of public health to require to approve any of those medical exemptions and the idea is that the exemptions should only be granted in cases where they're truly necessary for a medical reason and he wants to crack down on some of these doctors who are approving large amounts. Um, but that bill obviously has sparked a pretty big backlash um, from the anti-vaccination movement and parents who feel like they, you know, it, it's infringing on their, their decision making and their, their liberty to decide what sort of medical um, vaccines their children are exposed to. So the suspicion here is that people are either doctor shopping or there are certain doctors who would give an exemption that maybe most physicians wouldn't? Yeah, I mean, there's been quite a bit reported about a handful of doctors that are granting really large numbers. There's even instances where some of these doctors are doing these things um, online or over the phone and they're charging fees for it. So just I think the fear is that this has kind of become a cottage industry and that a lot of these exemptions just aren't legitimate. Well, th- but this brings up a, a, a real tension uh, because, as you guys have reported, uh, the governor has expressed some reservations uh, about the bill. Um, what did Newsom say, and what does that mean for possible passage of the law? Yeah, I was I was there for that. It was at the uh, Democratic convention in San Francisco a couple weeks ago, and he was sort of asked off the cuff about this bill, and he said, "You know, I'm a 
big supporter of vaccines. I'm a supporter of the restrictions that California has adopted in the past, but this one gives me pause. I, I think that parents and doctors should really have a say. I'm worried about bureaucrats getting involved in this relationship. And he didn't explicitly say that he would veto it. I, I followed up with him a couple days later at another event and, and he, you know, said he was open essentially to considering these changes, but it's probably going to mean that the author has to make work behind the scenes with the governor's office and make some changes that, you know, address his worries about how far this goes so that it doesn't get vetoed when it makes it to his desk. And I'll I'll add that the governor's statement really came as a big surprise to a lot of folks. They had a pretty strong support um, in the Senate for this. And at this point, you know, uh, Senator Pan, the author of the bill that I mentioned before, he he said he's working on an amendment. But I I think it's people are having a hard time envisioning what an amendment looks like that meets kind of that addresses sort of the concern that the governor outlined in terms of interfering with the relationship between patients and doctors. So I think a lot of people are kind of just waiting um, on the edge of their seats to see what any sort of amendment might look like. Last question. What if the legislators would like to pass a law that, that Governor Newsom is clearly against? Um, do they, would they ever consider overriding his veto? It's very unlikely if history is any guide during the eight years that Jerry Brown was governor prior to this when you had a Democratic governor and a democratically controlled legislature like we do now. It didn't happen. He vetoed some bills that were very popular among lawmakers, some that even passed with unanimous support. Uh, One I can think of was an exemption for menstrual Uh, sales taxes on menstrual products like tampons and lawmakers briefly toyed with the idea of bringing it back and overriding his veto but it there was no real traction for that because you have to maintain a good relationship with the governor who's going to have the veto pen to use against you in the future got it well thank you guys so much uh alexi dustin uh we'll be following your coverage uh through the year really appreciate you joining us thanks for having us thank you Thanks to our Sacramento reporters for joining us, Alexi Kossoff and Dustin Gardner. Thanks to Libby Coleman for producing this episode, and thank you for listening. Fifth and Mission is part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. If you like this show, we'd love it if you'd subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got a minute to give us a quick review, that helps us build our audience so we can keep growing. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it with a subscription to the San Francisco Chronicle. There are print and digital editions. Find out more at sfchronicle.com slash subscribe.